Welcome to Ogilov Nanagas. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Obrolochon Carmody. Visit storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories, translations, and much more. If you can, please support our work by making a donation through the website. We're doing this for the love of it. Series 6 Circling the Toy. Episode 2 Portents and Prophecies. Now, we're going to start today with a description of Concover, which comes from the Shkela Concover MacNessa, often translated as the tidings of Concover, son of Ness. This is from the Book of Leinster. On earth has there been no wiser child. He never delivered a judgment at a time when it was not permitted him, in order that he might not deliver a false judgment, so that the crops might not be the worse for it. On earth, then, there has been no mightier champion. Champions and war veterans and valorous heroes used to be in front of him in battles and conflicts, so that there might be no danger to him. Greater than can be told was the numbering of Concover's household and the number of his houses. Thrice fifty rooms within and three couples in each room. A wainscot of red yew was round the house. And Concover's room was on the floor of the house. Four fronts of bronze around it with top rings of silver and golden birds on the forefronts. And the gems of precious stones were the eyes in their heads. There was a rod of silver above Concover, with three golden apples upon it, and when it shook, or the sound of his own voice arose, the host was silent. And though only a needle should fall on the floor of the house, it would be heard, owing to the silence in which they were from respect for him. Within this episode, we really start to settle into our attempts to circle in on the Toynbull cooler. Well, a bit like the raven circling the battlefield. Well, I hope it won't come to that. <laughs> it will come to that. <laughs> yeah, it's a major task. There's a lot of material attached to this tradition. And as we said in our introductory episode, The Two Swineherds, there's a lot more involved in the Toyn than the cause and outcome of a single cattle raid. Absolutely. And as we touched on in that first episode, the Toyn is not a story single and unto itself. Within the tradition, there are standard Ravesgelta pre-stories, mm-hmm. um, of which there are lists, some of which are 10, some of which are 12, you know, but it is, however you look at it, a major group of interlocking and interconnected stories. Its most widely known story, of course, is the Toyn Bokulnia, which is the cattle raid of Cooley, but that's not even the only toyn in the tradition. <laughs> it can be difficult to get a grip on the breadth and scope of the material that are sort of coalesced into what is included under the title of the toyn. Yeah. It isn't a linear story as such, is no, it? No, it isn't. And that's part of what interests me about it, that you can't just start at the beginning and read all the way to the end. You have to take all these little side journeys and go a bit forward and a bit backward. Yeah, I've been trying to work out it's going to be hard to organise. We've been thinking about this for a long time and yeah. putting it off for a while. <laughs> and in the end, I came up with a metaphor, which mm-hmm. I decided works. I'm not sure you're happy with it. <laughs> so I prefer to think of the toy tradition using a sort of pictorial metaphor of, say, a planet. Mm-hmm. Take Saturn, you know, with all its rings and the way all its dust clouds around yeah. it and its lots and lots of moons. Mm. The central body of the story 
of the battle between the two great bulls and the corresponding conflict between the provinces and Ulster and Connacht. That's mm. at the centre. Yes. And they draw in a great many characters and locations that surround the main incidents and attract to it a large amount of loosely linked stories and a considerable amount of debris. Well, yes, but not all of the stories are so loosely linked as they might yeah. appear. Even. Well, that's what I'm trying to get yeah. at, is every important character and location is kind of like a moon and those have their backstories and then there's the anecdotal mythology included to enrich and embroider the weave of the story and so on. Yeah, and all of those genealogies, all those Dinhianicus, all of those sort of historical positioning and placing and I suppose. They add gravity. Well, if you like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm trying to continue this this sort of made-up metaphor of the toy as a ring planet. Yeah. So, yeah, I mentioned the word moon. These major characters and locations are important enough to be regarded as moons in themselves. <laughs> that makes them solid enough mm. to get to the point where their own backstories have backstories. Yes. <laughs> And it's about these important characters and locations that all the powerful prophecies and portents have coalesced. Of course, yes. Now, I think we might be kind of getting a little bit lost in this metaphor. Very likely. <laughs> but it just seemed to help explain the plethora of stories available to us in the yes. tradition and to give us a methodology for organising the series so that we don't try and impose a linear approach. I think that's all I'm trying to do. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's trying to impose things like a linear approach approach or even a kind of a direct cause and effect that gets people into trouble and misses out on some of the best stuff. Yeah, this is this. not a chronicle. No. We made a good start last time with that story of the two swine herds and we did comment then it felt like that story really foreshadowed and was a microcosm of the whole twin tradition and many of the main themes that we're going to come back to again and again could be found just in that little microcosmic story. Mm, and I think we're going to find ourselves referring to those themes, the ones we identified in that episode, as we encounter them through not just this episode but a lot of episodes to come. Well, yes. So if you haven't listened to episode one yet, The Two Swineherds, we really suggest that you do that before continuing with this one. Yes, do your homework oh, first. Dear, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds linear. Now we're being linear. <laughs> so today, in order to get us going, we're going to begin by exploring the backstories of two of these moons, as you call them. <laughs> A couple of heavenly bodies. Well, you might think so. <laughs> I certainly couldn't possibly comment. Uh, but... Anyway, these stories involve two of the central characters and the events that set their personal backstories, their personal pathways in motion. One of these characters will probably be familiar to anyone who has previously encountered the main story of the Great Cattle Raid of Cooley. The other one is a bit less well-known, uh, but we think it's deserve a bit more, yeah. They both become famous or even infamous warriors, and their conceptions and birth are awash with lowering portents and prophecies and heavy with doomed destinies. Uh, yes, they are, to say the least, colourful characters. So we're going to begin with a group of significantly prophesied conceptions and births. We're going to include two in this episode, but we'll do a few more in the next episode. <laughs> well, as I said earlier, there are backstories of backstories to deal with. Absolutely. The first one that we're looking at today is the conception and birth of Cuncover. 
So you opened this episode with a bit of a, a description of him. Well, I sort of cherry-picked some of the less unpalatable bits <laughs> from one point of view. Well, yeah. Uh, but he is a very much an uncompromising warlord. He's one of the the big men, if you like, yeah, of the Ulster culture. He's got, in that, from that description at the beginning, he's so much the champion yeah. that he has to have all his other warriors go out in front of him so nothing can happen to him. Yeah, not unlike Lou, in fact, in the Battle of Maitura, where they, they thought he was so important they'd have to keep, keep him away from the battle. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we said, you are what you say you are, yeah. but you may have to prove it. Yes. <laughs> but until you have to prove it, you're yeah. probably okay. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose we should introduce him by asking why is he in the story and what part does he play i mean it's just to get us into who these characters are yes or at least give a brief summary well he's definitely one of the real central characters to the main Toyne story and the wider tradition uh those ones that you refer to yeah, as those yeah, okay, moons okay, okay. around <laughs> our planet he's the king of ulster at the time of the Toyne, and he has his seat at Evonmacha, which is of course a central location in the Toyne as well absolutely it's the heart of ulster mm. he kind of appears as an overlord or an overchieftain of a lot of the famous characters that you have probably already heard of and gets into a lot of stories. So the heroes like Cúchalán and Concarnach, but also the wonderful Brickrew, who mm-hmm. we have met before and we'll meet again, and poets and satyrs like Avergan and Athernia. Good old Athernia. Yes, we love him. Now, he does also take the famous Deirdre for his wife. Oh, yeah. Deirdre of the Sorrows. It's not my favourite story. It never has been. No. But I am hoping to get to like it when it comes to researching the episode on her and the sons of Ushlu, which we'll inevitably have to do in full. Yes, well, we will, in fact, be looking at her birth story next time. And yeah. it does have quite a core role to play within the whole I story. I never work out why it's so popular. I know, I know. It It, it is nasty. There's it's nasty. miserable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that's for another day. It is, isn't it? Yeah. To get back to Concover, of course, the famous Don Cunha, the brown bull, lives within his territory, within Ulster, when he is in charge of it. And so, in a way, it's within his gift. Mm. So that becomes important, as we shall see. And I feel like it. he gets so important that every Ulster king kind of becomes a concover. Well, you mean he gathers stories to him much as Cormac MacArthur does? Yes, yes. Or indeed, you know, Merlin or Fionn or any of the other really familiar names. Yeah. As we've discovered, the stories that are associated with them don't necessarily belong to them in the first place. Concover becomes so important that one of the things at the heart of his story is this conceit that he is born on the same day as Jesus of Nazareth. It's even said that he dies when he hears the news of Jesus' death. But we'll come to that much later. Yes, death, much later. Deaths are for later on in this series. We're also in the story of Concover and his conception and birth. We're going to meet another very recognisable name, and that is Cuthbert the Druid. Now, we should try to answer the same question about him. Who is this Cuthbert and what is he doing in the story? Well, for a start, it's curious. He is a named druid. Very often in stories, you get a certain druid came by or druids prophesied this or such and such a, a king sent his druid. Cuthbert is named and 
that doesn't happen all that often, really. You always get the impression that they're, they're named quite frequently. I can mm. think of several. But actually, you're right. When you look at the stories, it's less common than you think, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Now, Cuthbert is connected with royalty. He is said in this story to be a son of Ross. And that is the same parentage as Fergus MacRoss, who is the King of Ulster before Concover takes the kingship. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely part of the aristocratic households. What I think is really interesting in the Concover stories is that Cuthbert is always described as a kind of a warrior druid. He's feinid as well as being a dry. And that seems to be some point of note mm. about Cosford mm. when you're going so to talk about So he's a fear leader. Yes. He has his own war band and he goes wandering off. Now, isn't he a younger son? We're kind of extrapolating a bit, but if he has the same father as, as the King of Ulster, then you could imagine that the elder son takes over the, the kingship and then the younger son is maybe, you know, trained... Although a profession. It, you can't always say that the older son gets the kingship, but yeah. nevertheless, he seems to be the leader of a war band. Yes. An outlier, mm. a young hero who yes. goes off and does things with his yes. war band. goes a feening or a yeah. viking or whatever verb you want to use. But yeah, certainly the fian bands are sort of wild young men who are not fit to be held within <laughs> civilised society. And when the stories were later told under the influence of the church and primogenitor in particular, mm. it might have been considered a very good yes. role for a younger son. Yes, I think so. I think but so. that doesn't hold automatic truth in no. the earlier stories because you didn't get to be the king just because you were the oldest son. No, not necessarily. <laughs> so he sort of becomes a Merlin in mm. the same way that Concover becomes every else the king. I yeah. think so, most yeah. certainly. What Curious is that when you do look at the Ulster stories, where if there's things that pe- everybody knows about mm-hmm. the Ulster stories, it's that, you know, Concover is the king and Cathbud is his druid. But in fact, in lots of stories, including in Brickrew and including in, in some of these ones, we find that the named filler is Shenneke. He yeah. is the, the voice of reason. <laughs> so Cathbud is the outsider coming yeah. in with the interesting news. Yes. Or kind of upsetting apple carts. Well, we should get on and tell the story of Concover's birth. There is, as you might expect, more than one version of this birth story, and they are all worth reading. What we're going to do is go through the story as it's told in the Stowe manuscript, uh, but we'll point out big discrepancies as we go through. And, of course, there'll be links to the different versions on the website. And do go and enjoy reading these stories. They are fantastic fun. So let's start. There was once a king over Ulster called Yohu Solvide, which means yellow heel, and he was Macloich. He had a beautiful daughter, don't they all, and she was called Ness. Now, he gave her 12 fosterers, that's teachers and fosterers, to bring her up and to educate her. And she was so polite and so easy to teach and well-mannered that she was known as Asa. Asa? Asa means easy. It's related to our nianza, which means not uneasy. Uh, you know, okay. In other words, not difficult. So Asa in this is meaning easy. <laughs> It's an unfortunate name for a Yeah, but it, yeah, it? It, well, yeah. But I think it means sort of gentle. Well, it does. It means pliable. Pliable. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So, from the southern part of Ulster, though we didn't live there, mm. came a warrior poet called Cathbud. Well, maybe he was busy rampaging around the country, didn't have much time to put down roots in that way. I did say earlier about him being a droy as well as this feinid, the fian warrior, and... 
every version remarks on this martial career of Cathbad. That seems to be consistent throughout. Mm. Now, in this version, he has his three nines of fighters and they meet up with another Fenian, it says knight, yeah. or warrior, with his own three times nine men. And they meet up in a wilderness and they fight together and they fight and fight, but neither side can win, so they agree to team up and go off fighting together. Yes. <laughs> Out of the blue, no rationale, two equal forces in a stalemate. Yeah. Now, that business of the two Fian warriors meeting and fighting and teaming up. It's isn't it? It is a bit. It doesn't show up in either the Book of Leinster, Skeleton Cover, or in the Yellow Book of Lekin, which is the other place we get the Cumbert, the conception of Cumbert. It just says that Cathford and these three nines of warriors go out on a rampage. But it is still out of the blue and unexplained. Well, they go off into Ulster and they go and kill Ness's protectors, her 12 foster parents. She manages to escape and returns to her father, but he can't do a thing. He can't avenge the deed and neither can anyone else because nobody knows who did it. Yeah. This interlude of going back to her father, again, that's only in Stowe, but they all agree on the next section and that no one knows who did these random killings. Now, Ness isn't very pleased. (laughs) In fact, she's infuriating. (laughs) And she takes it into her head to go out and become a warrior herself, avenge her foster parents, wreaking destruction everywhere she goes. Now she takes on a new name. Yes, and it says, but Niasa was her name after that because of the greatness of her prowess and her valour. So that's no easy? Niasa, no. Not easy, yes. Now, it's a little bit of a synthetic etymology, I think, but this is definitely her story. So now we have a warrior woman rushing around trying to find the people who killed her teachers and foster fathers. And I'm not surprised. I mean, after the way she's been treated, nobody can do a thing. They just turn up out of the blue, no provocation, kill everyone. Yeah, what's a girl to do? And everywhere she goes, she tries to discover the killers and it gets worse and worse and worse. Yes. Now, out in a wilderness uh, somewhere in Ulster, she finds a beautiful spring and decides that it's time for a bath. She gets into the spring, leaving her clothes and her weapons beside her on the grass. And this is when Cathwood happens across her and he gets between her and her clothes and her weapons and threatens her with his sword. Now, that's not very nice of him. No, I don't like him very much. (laughs) He says that he will spare her only if she grants his three requests. And she really has no choice but to accede to these so-called requests. I like her wry response. Mm. It just says it all. It's better for me than to be killed by thee and my weapon's gone. She doesn't see it as being worse than death. She sees death as worse than rape. I don't blame her. Quite sensible. But in the Book of Leinster version, it's more brutal and straightforward that it's just, it's a forcible rape. There's no asking for three wishes or anything of, of the sort. It's just, I... I have your weapons, you are naked. I have your clothes. I am going to rape you. That's it. Even in this version with the the three demands. Yeah. She has little choice. I mean, what she has to agree to is she must agree to remain under his protection. Mm. In other words, she has to stay his hostage, his prisoner. More than that, she has to promise to be his wife for life. Yeah. And that's bigger than it sounds. Yes. Basically, she's not going to just get off quick. No. And worse... Just like asking the genie for no, no take revenge, backs. no take backs. Yeah. He says that she must keep this agreement in peace forever. Yeah. That's really 
horrible. It is. But he's a poet. He knows what he's talking yeah. about. Yeah. So after an appropriate passage of time... Which he says, at a prospicious hour. In mm. other words, when the moment's right and he might get away with it. Well, yes, but Cathford, being a droy, also knows a bit about when right. to do things correctly. I'm just taking against him at this uh, point. Well, no, he's, he's awful. I don't like him. Cathford then goes to Ulster and meets with Ness's father. And somewhat surprisingly, he makes them welcome. He gives them land. This land is Rath Cathford, which just means Cathford's fortification, in the country of the Krithna, which is translated as Picts, near the river called Cunhover in Creecross. Yeah, but nothing to do, just because it says Picts, it's nothing to do with Scots. Not directly. It's very confusing. It is Krithna and it's translated as the land of the Picts, but it doesn't mean what we now think of as Scotland. The land of the Krithna was part of South Ulster around County Monaghan. Might have gone down as far as Louth and Meath. Mm. But of course, there's a lot of crossing there was over. A lot of back and forth. Absolutely. It, it, Scotland and, and Northern, Northern Ireland, Ireland, as yeah. we know, are Picts and Scots and stuff. Get, yes. it, it gets very confusing and we're not going into it here yeah. because it's extremely confusing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so now we come to the event that brings about the birth of Concover himself. We finally got there. Yeah. Now, curiously, this is only in the Stowe version, but it does seem. <laughs> Pretty important. Well, again, it doesn't put Cathvad in a very good light. No, no it really again. doesn't. <laughs> so one night, her forcible husband, Cathvad, is thirsty. Mm-hmm. Now he just demands something to drink. Yeah. And Ness, unfortunately, can't find anything for him to drink in the dune. Mm. So she goes down to the river to get water. And because it's river water, mm. she filters it through her veil. Mm. So, you know, she's going to keep out all the bits and pieces. But unfortunately, when Cathvad calls for light so he can check on the river water, in other words, he doesn't trust her, yeah. he finds two worms in the water. When he finds these worms, he once again threatens to kill her. He holds his sword above her head uh, for this either oversight or maybe he does think she's trying to get around having to live with him peacefully. Yeah, well, whatever. He forces Ness to drink the water with the worms in it. One worm she takes with each swallow. Yeah. And, of course, the predictable happens. She becomes pregnant from the worms. Of course. Mind you, the text is really quite quick to point out that she did have a lover, and that was Fachna Fathak, and that some say it was him who caused the pregnancy <laughs> rather than these worms. Wow, a note of realism. <laughs> well, something like that. I like that, the fact that the text says, well, yeah. in the end, she still managed to have a lover, all right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the truth is that as far as Cathvad is concerned, yeah. Ness is a good catch. She brings him land yeah she brings him status yeah which he feels as though he deserves mm. so in a way she's a little bit of a trophy oh wife. totally she's entirely and that. yeah possibly as we know the, the that wouldn't stop her having her own liaisons yes after the the usual amount of time it specifies i think in both text mm-hmm. that it's after the normal nine months she ends up going into labor while she and Cathford are visiting a certain Fachnafathuk. The same one. The same one. Mm-hmm. And he is given as the son of Rothriga that they are at Magenish, which is in County Down. So we're still in that sort of southern bit of Ulster. But Cathford tells her that it would have been better if she had been able to hold on for just one more day. As if you had a choice. If she had, he says, your son would be then the King of Ulster or all of Ireland and his name would be remembered forever. And he does 
kind of comment as well that, oh, it'll also be the day that Jesus is going to be born. Now, that coincidence is noted in every version. Yeah. This is the Yellow Book of Lecham version. And it says, for seven years before his birth had the prophets foretold that on the night that Christ should be born, a notable chief should be born in Ireland. The Book of Leinster says, in the hour that Christ was born, he was born. Seven years before his birth, seven prophets were foretelling him, and they said that a wondrous birth would be born at Christ's nativity on yonder stone whereon Concover was born and that his name would be famous in Ireland. So they're quite determined about it, aren't they? Yeah, and and it really, it's one of those points where it comes up in each version. And I I don't quite get it. Well, I I see it as a legitimisation of Concover. This is somebody we want to carry on from the past into the future. He's still one of us. In fact, in his way, he's as great as Christ. He's the saviour of Ulster, even though he's not. I know, he's not, exactly. He doesn't really fit the bill. They could have picked somebody else. But he had enough status that they wanted to connect him and keep him on yeah, in yeah. a new regime. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's significant. Yes, it certainly is. It was significant enough to Ness herself. She vowed that her child would not be born until the next day, saving that it would come out of her side, which means unless somebody comes along and gives her a forcible C-section. Yes, which she would not survive. So, <laughs> yeah, so unless so it, it kills her. Kills yeah. her. I'm going to do this if it kills me. Exactly. And so what she does is she sits on a rock, sits on a flagstone beside the river Concover and prevents the birth from oh happening till the next day. <laughs> that makes me feel very odd. I know, I know. It sort of makes you clench a bit, doesn't it? Well, it does, yeah. especially if you've had children. <laughs> you go, ah, uh, No. <laughs> Definitely not. It's horrific. It is. It is. Yeah. And the other thing is, is, isn't this part of the story, this birth, particular to Concover? It really is. There are other kind of motifs and other elements of this story that are familiar from other birth stories and other wondrous conceptions. But this business of sitting on a rock for 24 hours, that is Ness. That is what Ness does in order for Concover to be born. Mm. Well, meanwhile... Cathvad chants a long poem of prophecy for the coming child. Although, of course, in all sections it said he's only repeating prophecy that's been around for seven years. Well, it would seem so, yeah. Right. Since poetry frequently retains older material, it might be worth selecting a few lines just to yeah. give now. And the lines I've chosen are given in order, but they're not consecutive yeah. lines. The whole poem is given here in the Stowe version, which you'll be able to see on the website. And at least Cathvad commences with a few words of comfort for his wife. Yeah. <laughs> And he starts, Be not sorrowful, O wife, a head of hundreds and of the hosts of the world will he be, thy son. And next he points out that this child will be born the same hour as Jesus, as we've mentioned. The same propitious hour to him and to the king of the world, the same night will he be born, he and Christ. And goes on to say, glorious will be his story. He will be the king of grace. He will be the hound of Ulster, who will take the pledge of knights. Now, this is curious. The hound of Ulster is much more commonly applied to Cúhullan. As the king of grace is likely to be applied to Christ. Exactly, yeah. I suppose this is a hint that he's accruing story elements from other sources. Yes, and that, I mean, epithets are not always reserved for one person, but Concover certainly seems to be taking a lot to him. And sometimes they're just generally tradition dependent. Yeah. And people know that if you call somebody this, it applies to any great hero. Exactly, yeah. And a Hound of Ulster could be any of them, any Concover, of the warriors. It could yeah. be Connell. Next, there are comments concerning his parentage, and I think these are interesting. Yes. It goes, he will be no son to Cathvad, this beautiful, active man. He will be a son of Fakna Fathok, a Skawak nose, my son, 
and my grandson. Now, this is really interesting, this business of saying he's my son and my grandson. Now, Having said that he's not my son. Yeah. He then says he's my son and my grandson. Yeah. And a son of someone else. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's all a it's, little sounds bit... sounds like one of those horrible logic puzzles. <laughs> How do you get to be your own grandfather? Yeah. yeah. I'm never good at them. No. It is really curious, but again, when we're looking at these kind of big sprawling aristocratic families where they're all sons of Ross and you have another Ulster king of Fachnafathach who it's quite possible could be another child of Cathford's. The family trees are terribly entangled in these stories but I do think it's significant that he says he's not my son, he's a son of Fachnafathach and but I'm going to recognise him, I'm going to claim him as part of my family. And so he could be his grandson if he's, oh goodness me it is one of those puzzles. Yes it is <laughs> But why bring in Scott? That's a really interesting one and it, it doesn't appear, we have most of this poem in the Yellow Book of Lecan mm-hmm. version, we don't have that line I wondered, was it almost like a proverbial saying where, you know, it's like, oh, well, no one knows who that child's father is unless Scott knows. Yeah. I mean, you know, we haven't mentioned the Cahullan stories. We'll Cahullan. be getting to those. She is, of course, one of his... One of his great teachers. Yeah, she's one the of the... Scott. I'm really looking forward oh, to that that's story. That's be always lovely. been one of my favourites. Yes, yes. But, uh, yeah, and she is, a, I think she's a strong archetypal figure, but yes. we'll come back to that later. Yeah. So you're right, it could be. Yeah, it could, it could be sort of... A bit like people might say, well, you know, God knows who the father is. But it's interesting because like mm. the Hound of Ulster could yeah. be either. Yeah. And here we've got a reference again to Cuckoo. The boy is born the next day with a worm in each hand. Yes. So it's not that the worms have made him pregnant, but they've sort of, they're part of the process. Yeah, yeah. We'll come to that later. Mm-hmm. I love the bit where he immediately rolls backward into the river. Yes. And is grabbed by Cathbad. Yeah. So after that, he gets the name of the river. Which is Concover. Macfachna, it says in this version. Although everywhere else, he's always called Concover Macnessa. It's or... certainly saying that in this version, people are saying that Fachna is his father. It's interesting that he is most usually known by his mother's name. And we've come across that a couple of times, most notably with Lou. Lou was always Lou McGethlin. Yeah. And even the poet Carbra in the Gath Magaturid was Carbra Magagina. And his poor baby, his head's been banging on a stone for, for 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. And then he falls into a river. Yeah. <laughs> now, in the Book of Leinster version, which is the Scala Concover, known as the tidings or the news of Concover, the way that Concover gets the kingship of Ulster is interesting because we mentioned just in passing earlier that the king when he was born was Fergus MacRoss and that Fergus fancies Ness this mm-hmm. is she's said to be still unmarried when concovers a child and in exchange for getting Ness into his bed concover is allowed to be king for a year now he's only 7 years old at that time and uh, the people of Ulster say, "Ah, go on then. It'll be it'll be fine. He, you'll be the real king, Fergus. But you know, we'll give him the name of king. Let him sit there for a year and pretend to be king. After that year, of course, the people of Ulster are so impressed with how this seven-year-old has governed Remember them. That thing about he never made a bad judgment as a child. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is where that comes from. Now, it describes how he uh, basically took taxation from every second person in the country. And and oh, get lollipops on Saturday! Yeah, and makes all of the <laughs> Ulster uh, champions rich, and so they really like it. So after that year, they say, well, what Fergus has given away, let him lose, and what Concover has won, let him keep. And Ooh, that's how he... like Ness, Yeah, me. yeah. So that's just a little 
coda on the story of his birth about getting mm. to be king when he's only seven. Less is bright. Yeah. Seems bright, but she has had a rough deal throughout oh. the first part of this story. Absolutely. I mean, she is treated really horribly. You know, Catherine just randomly kills her foster parents. And just to remind people that when we're talking about foster parents... We're talking about the people who really raised a child emotionally, that the terms for your foster father, Adja, and your foster mother, Buima, they're the equivalent of mommy and, and daddy, daddy. Yeah. You know? So those are the people that you were really actually bonded to. And all 12 of them are just randomly killed by Casford. Mm. And then later he kidnaps her or just rapes her. Mm. But she does want this famous son. There's something that I found odd. It says in the how. Concava gets the kingship story mm. that she was unmarried and yet mm. one of the three things that she promised him that she would be his wife for life. Yeah. So there is a confusion here or there is a misunderstanding of terms. Well, we have different mm. versions here mm. because in this business of Ness being unmarried when Concover is seven, that's from the Book of Leinster version and in that, Cathford just rapes her. Yes, of course. You yeah, know, there's, yeah. there's no agreement, there's no three wishes, there's no... Conditions. And this is the version that follows with this story, yes. so it's quite consistent. Yes, yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. she's appallingly determined. Yes, yeah, but she's had so much wrong done to her. And I sort of feel like there's only one time that she has any choice in the matter, and she takes it. And that choice is to have this famous and important son. And that is her story. Yeah. That is the one thing which is there all the way through all yeah, the stories. Yeah, and that is hers. And it seems that for her, status is paramount. Oh, yeah. And I think the worms are very important as well, but we'll come back to those later, so hold that thought. Yeah. Our second main character, whose birth involves doom and dreadful <laughs> destiny, <laughs> is not dissimilar from that of Concover. No, we're going to look at the story of Conal Kernach's conception and birth. Now, we have to look to the core anodnon for this, and that's usually translated as the fitness of names, and it's a late Middle Irish sort of dinhenicus of people, if you like. It's sort of why people get called such and such, and what does their name mean? Um, unfortunately, this Colonel Kernock's conception hasn't survived as an independent tale, but it's definitely worth going through. Now, I suppose it would help if we asked the same question that we applied to Concava and to Cathfad. Yeah. So... Who is he and what role or roles does he play in our twin stories? Right. Well, Connell's mother is Finn Coyve and she is described as, guess what, a daughter <laughs> of Cathfud. Okay. Now, she's also the wife of Avergan Darkhair and her brother is Cades McMoggach, who is a very important figure connected with the Connacht people. But of course, then with that connection to Cathfud, Connell also gets this allegiance to Ulster. Now, that's a lot of names. <laughs> yes. But the point is, he's very well connected and he's connected on both sides. Exactly. Connacht and Ulster is there. He's a central character in the Toyn tradition, but as I said, he doesn't have one central story. He turns up in a lot of stories. He does, yeah. Now, he's very closely associated with Cúhullan, and that's where we've met him before in Fled Frickwin. Now, Gunnell, he indirectly causes the death of Concover, and he directly causes the death of Alil, as in Maeve's Alil, king of Connacht. But he's just not as well known as the other folks, so let's see where his story begins. Now, there's a lovely phrase here, that there was hesitation of children <laughs> upon Finn Coive, the daughter of Cathbud, the wife of Avergan Darkhair, so that she did not bear any children. 
It doesn't say on whose side that hesitation was, by the way. And one day, she's visited by a druid who gives this great prophecy... For a fee. For a reasonable fee, indeed, that she would have a great son. He told her to come and to a nearby well the next day, and he sang spells over the well and told her to go and bathe in it. And they didn't pinch her clothes, though. Uh, no, thank goodness. Well, he's being paid enough. He tells her that the child that she will bear is going to bring great trouble onto his mother's people. And that's the entire province of Connacht. <laughs> she goes ahead. Oh, she does, yeah. It seems more important for her to have a famous son than to have a peaceful or loyal son. Yes, well, that's what you get in these stories, I'm afraid. So... She drank from the well, and guess what? She <laughs> swallowed a worm. Yep. And the worm, it says, grew with the fetus and pierced the baby's hand and consumed it in the womb of his mother. Yeah. So here's the worm again. Is the text suggesting that Connell has a deformed hand? It's kind of curious, isn't it? Especially that phrase that the worm consumed his hand. There isn't any direct indication that Connell ends up having a problem with one of his hands. But I think it's significant that later in life he has two quite famous one-handed single combats. Give us an example. Yeah, so in the story of the Battle of Hoth, um, he fights Mesgethra, who's a king of Leinster. And they end up in single combat following the battle. The battle, incidentally, is instigated by our dear friend, the satirist Athernia. It's hardly surprising. Yeah, I think we're going to meet him a few times, which will be fun. Now, Mesgedra only had one hand. He'd lost a hand in an earlier fight. And so Cunnell, in the honourable fashion, fought him with one hand tucked into his belt. <laughs> Just a thought in passing. It isn't suggesting that he's left-handed, is it? Like a kithog. The idea of being left-handed mm. has been seen as strange, uh, I think sinister. Absolutely. In so many places and mm. so many times. Do you know that, according to the Assyriologist Irving Finkel, yeah, I'm very fond of some of Oh, books, yes. It was absolutely impossible to write cuneiform script left-handed. There yeah. were no left-handed scribes. Yeah. The only reason I put that in is because being left-handed seems to have been a problem. A, a problem all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And um, all over through time. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Thank goodness not now, because I know. Yeah, I know, I know. So many lefties these days. So many kid dogs. But it's an interesting possibility, you know. Just a thought. There are also some interesting theories about how left-handed fighters have had an advantage. They're unexpected. Exactly, yeah. Whether it's boxing or martial combat. So to get back to Finkoiv, anyway. Her brother, who's this Cade McMagach of the Connachta, he hears the prophecies that his sister is going to have a child who's going to kill more than half of the Connacht people. Not a good thing to hear. No, it really isn't. Now, despite this, he protects his sister until she has the child. And then, of course, there was the druid prophecy at the boy's birth. Of course, you can't have a heroic birth without such things. Now, what I like is that the details of that prophecy is pretty much borne out by a description of Connell Carnock that we get from the Scala Con cover in the Book of Leinster. Kind of bloodthirsty he was. Here's a bit of it, anyway. Mm -hmm. From the hour he took a spear in hand, he was never without slaying one of the Connacht men every day and without destroying their houses by fire every night. And he never slept without a Connachtman's head under his knee. There was not in Ireland a cow chief's land on which Connell Kernock had not wrought some slaughter. He wasn't very popular with the Connachtman, let's say. But it's particularly this business that he would never be anywhere without having some of the heads of the Connachtas oh, somewhere about his person. That's going to put 
off his mother's kin and I that's know. exactly what happens. <laughs> exactly. So as soon as the child is born, Cade McMogger is completely horrified by this future career and he attempts to stamp on the poor child's head, but he fails to kill him. It says that it crushes the neck but doesn't get the marrow so of the bone. So it doesn't break his neck. doesn't break his neck. Oh, why on earth does Cade wait until the child is born? Yeah, it seems a bit strange that he goes from protecting his pregnant sister to then trying to kill the child but perhaps it's that he wants the child dead but not his sister and that if the rest of the Connacht heard about this prophecy they might have killed her long before that child is born and presumably the mother grabs the baby back in time well yeah certainly and she gives her brother a bit of a tongue lashing for it in puns oh yes always in puns we're, we're in the Koran of none here it's all about the puns she says wolf-like is the treachery that you do brother and the wolf-like there is given as kunda and then the treachery is fell it's true said Cade Connell or Confell will be his name from here on. Oh, and he gave his son to her, it says yes. in the text. Yeah. yeah, from which is his name. Connell Crookedneck Kernock. There's quite a variety of meanings for his name are given in this text, though, aren't there? Well, this is all part of the wonderful yeah. synthetic etymology tradition. So well, it's, it's good fun. It's just yeah. a page of puns, really. Exactly. Well, it's how many ways can you split up a word so that it looks like different things. So what it says is Connell Kernock after Connell Cairn Neod. That is a strong man, for Cairn means man and Neod means strong. Or it is from the Latin Cairno, I see, for it was the same seeing something by day and by night through the bright eye which was in his head. Oh, that's pushing it. That's really <laughs> pushing it. Or Connell Cairnock, that is Connell the Victorious. No, that's how I know him. Which is what it actually means. Mm. For Cairn means victory, for great was the victory above everyone. And that's how he's known in uh, Fled Brickrick. It is, yes. So, what shall we make of these two birth stories then? <laughs> well, there are some interesting repetitions of motif and especially that worm motif we said mm. we'd come back to that both of these women swallow the worms and henceforth children are conceived now we said we find echoes of the battle of the two swineherds as we went along yeah now the final transformation of Fruk and Rukt as small worms that fall into two rivers one in Ulster mm. one in Connacht as far as I remember yes is that they're swallowed by the two cows who eventually become the mothers of the marvellous bulls. Yes. And again, the not-human agency at this time, well, but yeah, bovine but... agency, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> is acknowledged. Yeah, oh yeah. It's the same mixture. Yes, and it is a mixture. And in fact, when we come to the birth of Cúchollan, we have the same idea, that same motif. And it appears in plenty of examples outside of the Toyn tradition, as we found with Aideen, who, of course, is reborn when her mother drinks from that goblet into which the purple fly had fallen. It is interesting. The worms are not regarded as having sole responsibility for conception. You've got your human agency yeah. or whatever. Normal agency yes, is, yes. is acknowledged. It's almost as though the presence of these worms is necessary for these destiny-heavy birds. Exactly, yeah. I feel like this has been misinterpreted, maybe, in the past as evidence that the Irish had this belief in a transmigration of souls or reincarnation. As we've said before, it's remarked upon yeah. as something remarkable, so it's not a standard thing. 
it's perhaps a bit more like the way that the birds appear in so many of these stories. These are creatures that indicate there's an otherworld involvement in this story. It's another a marker. Development has to be taken into account. Yes, it's included with the normal, natural mm. proceedings of human life. And if you think about it, think about the symbolism mm. of this. After all, mayflies, dragonflies, butterflies, they are a clear metaphor for transformation and rebirth, yeah. if not a, an actual significator for reincarnation or yes, anything like that, yeah. but they still mean transformation. Yes. And, well, yeah, that's obvious. The unexpected, <laughs> a massive transformation mm. of metamorphosis from larva through pupation to the final adult creature yeah. is astonishing. It is, yeah. So it seems an obvious metaphor for conception of birth, if you think about it. Mm. I mean, in bald terms, what goes in is not the same as what comes out. <laughs> Yes. That's the way I was thinking about it. Yes, yes. What you've actually got is a tradition-dependent motif for a wondrous birth. Exactly. To look a bit more at a kind of mirroring of the birth stories of both Conal and of Concover. Well, there's Cathvad who instigates the action in both stories. Oh, he's there in the background. He's definitely got his finger in that one, hasn't he? Both of the mothers are bathing in wells or springs. They both end up swallowing worms. As we've talked about. Ness swallows the two and Finn of the one. Both stories involve concepts such as abuse of women, forcible marriage, kidnapping, rape, and even tempted child murder. Yes. They also both have this real determination by those mothers to have an important child, even one whose life will be really utterly destructive and possibly towards the mother's own kin. But it just dominates these two stories. Yeah, it seems that this emphasis on having famous or powerful children is immense in the toy yeah. tradition, and we're going to meet that again. We are. You know, Cade, I was thinking about it, he faces that should you kill a child if you know he's going to grow up to be evil problem. Yes, the sort of should you kill Hitler as a baby kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I do really feel that Connell deserves to be much better known. And I think he's got more importance than the, sort of, well, not inconsequential, bloodthirsty, rampaging noble warrior, which is how he is most generally prepared. <laughs> oh yeah, Connell the Victorious with the severed heads attached to his belt. Wouldn't fancy meeting him later in Carrick on a Saturday night. Uh, no, he can be a little bit over the top, but then they all can, can't they? I think he might have a bit of a wider significance originally that's got a bit lost. There's another section in the Koran of Nun and the Fitness of Name, which is on the Dáil Arata. And it says that all the Doyle Arata are descended from Colonel Kernock. And that makes him an important ancestor figure. And as we know, they're always a bit more than they might at first appear. Now, I was getting a bit confused between the Doyle Arata and the neighbouring people of the Doyle Riata. There are two of the big Ulster sects. And basically, between them, they cover most of eastern Ulster, with the Dolriada eventually setting out to set up a colony in Scotland. And that's one of the many ways in which there's this very close cultural connection between parts of Scotland and that part of Northern Ireland. So Connell is very much involved in one of the really most important sects as their originator and their progenitor. So he's an ancestor figure for a major family. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. for a wide group of people. So do you think elements of his birth story were stolen and given to Concover? Well, it's quite possible that elements from these two stories have been conflated. And Concover is one of those characters who tends to mm. grab the stories of others. You know, it, it tends to be that any important Ulster king is a Concover. But what is 
particular to come cover is Nessa's determined sit. Mm. That's hers. That's what she does. And that's what makes Concover's birth unique. If Connell is so significant as an ancestor, maybe we should take this opportunity to examine his CV in a bit more detail. <laughs> now, as we said earlier, Connell has an important role to play in several of the main stories, but he doesn't have any one story of his own. So we might not have another opportunity to put his life story together. As yes. Yeah, why not? As was foretold in the, his birth prophecies, he remains incredibly keen on taking severed heads as trophies. Yeah, he wins the champion's portion at MacDotho's place from his uncle Kate by tossing a severed head at him. Yes. <laughs> now, understandably, he continues his lifelong animosity towards Kate, his uncle. I'm not surprised. No, he tried to kill him at exactly. birth. So one day when the warriors of Connacht and Ulster compete for the champion's portion by boasting of their deeds, Connell's boasts outdo even Kit's. So Kit responds by going, well, you wouldn't say that if my brother Anne Lewin were present. Mm -hmm. His feats would beat yours. Mm -hmm. da, 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 da. At which Connell then tosses Anne Lewin's head straight at him. Yeah, yeah. It's very kind of playgroundy, isn't it? <laughs> my brother would beat yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting enough, you have got another champion's portion story with with a severed head, head involved. Yeah. But I still think that Brick Crew is a source story. Oh yeah, yeah, it would seem so. And Connell does appear in the story of Brick Crew's Feast as well in Fleth Brickrun. And that's why I think that business of the severed head at MacDartho is so interesting, because as we know, there's decapitation involved in Fleth Brickrun. Now but in that, Cunnels are not as impressive. He's just there as a bit of a stooge to Cúchulainn. Himself and Loigra are both kind of just there to show how wonderful Cúchulainn is, much Almost better than everybody comic else. Almost relief at times, yeah, they? Yeah, just how, oh, look at them scaredy cats running away. They're the ones who don't win every time. Exactly. We spent three episodes on the wonderful Brick Cruise Feast yeah. story. Links are on the website, of course, but we'll be looking at Fled Brickrun in the context of the toy a bit later. Yes. But it is always worth going back to that. We're it's, not going to do the whole thing again. We really are not. No, I think that our listeners might get a bit uh, antsy with that. So would we. Yeah. <laughs> there is this point as well with Connell that I alluded to earlier, where he has these two very important single combats that he fights one-handed in order to face an enemy who only has one hand. Now, Connell also appears in Toynbo Freyach, which is where he's helping Freyach to get back his cattle and, I think, incidentally, his wife and children from all the way across the Alps. We touched on this before, didn't we? It rings a bell. When we recorded the episode on the Toynbo Freyach, I remember commenting on the trip across the Alps and mm. going, well, I don't know what that's about. Yeah, yeah. It just seemed to be an exotic, faraway <laughs> place, didn't it? It seemed to be somewhat out of context mm. in terms of the story. Mm. And so they went off across the Alps. Yeah. Now, this again is pure speculation, but mm. the other day I was reading a book by Hal Holschul or Halshul, but it's called The Worlds of Arthur. Mm. And it sets out to examine the current textual and archaeological evidence, which is largely non-existent for <laughs> historical Arthur. Yeah. It's described as a, an annoyed book about people who keep trying to make Arthur into something yes. that he clearly textually is not. Yes. And I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> but what I find interesting was that he sets his exploration in an unusually broad European context yeah. rather than an insular one. Mm. And therefore, because of this, he places the role of Ireland in a much more prominent position than is sadly common. Yeah, well, even people who look at the European context often miss Ireland out. So it's great that there is someone who is actually taking it into consideration. In the book, he discusses the civil wars between contending candidates for emperor in the last days of the Roman Empire and how the 
British-based contender whose name was Magnus Maximus, who was commander of Britain around 388 CE, left with his armies and auxiliaries, and he went to defeat in the Alps. Mm-hmm. He, the battle took place. He was completely defeated yeah. and executed. But his departure marks the end of direct Roman involvement in the British islands. What do you mean, direct rule, is it? Well, well, sorry. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it depends how you look at it. Yeah, actually. yeah. This Magnus Maximus was shows up in the Welsh tradition. He does indeed. Yeah, and there he is given the name of Maxon Ulladay, which sounds very Ulsterish to me, but my I Welsh don't think so. is I not don't good think enough. So. No, no, no. That's he turns up in the Babinogion. Ah, uh, yes. There's a dream of the Maxon Ulladay. That's a story for another day. Uh, and, yes. and I'm certainly not suggesting any connection between Furich and any Roman battle, it does just sound like a story fragment passed on and half-remembered. Mm. It's an interesting context for it. Back to looking at Cummel's uh, stories, his later life is full of incidents. As I said before, he ends up responsible for killing Alil, and when he does it, he's calling it a revenge for Fergus. Now, that's Fergus McRoyke, who was very mm. much entangled in the whole story of Deirdre. We'll meet him later on. We yeah. will indeed. And, of course, there's the battle, which I talked about before, mm-hmm. which is one of his one-handed combats. But when he beats Beskedra, he takes his head. And Cull's charioteer then takes the brain out of the head, because it's too big to carry, apparently, probably with all the other heads in the chariot. And he takes the brain, solidifies it in lime, and this makes the brain ball that eventually kills Cun Cover. Right. Now, those are stories worth the telling. But since they're death stories, we may save them for later. Uh, We're trying to be storytellers, not chroniclers. Well, yes. As far as possible. Possible. Yes. But in a way, what we're trying to do is apply some of the old traditional structure on this, which is to group stories by their themes. So today we've been looking at a couple of Cumbert. They're the the conception tales and the Adida, which are the violent death tales, Mm. of which there are a lot relating to the time tradition. And that was the way that storytellers worked, wasn't it? Was putting the stories into themed groups. Yes, exactly. So at the moment we're looking at the Cumbert, we will eventually look at the Tana, and then at the very end, the other, the, the violent deaths. Yeah, we'll save the dire and dreadful deaths till later. Oh, yes, and enjoy them when they come. But we will, as usual, put up links to the relevant texts on our website so that you can keep on reading and read it in whatever order appeals to you. But that's about it for today. And it's probably better to save more in-depth analysis until we've covered a further set of the portentous births, which we're going to look at in the next episode. Yep, we need more data. So to retain perhaps your somewhat stretched (laughs) metaphor, today we have established uh, the position of a major moon in our Toyne planetary system. Uh, Concover and Awanmaka. Yes, and a certain wandering comet, if you like, of (laughs) Kulkarnak. Next episode, we're going to cover portentous birth and childhood of Deirdre. She of the sorrows. Yes, the poor woman. And a birth-related incident that puts the entire province of Ulster under a permanent curse. And the rather convoluted conception and birth of Cúchulán himself. So three more very determined women then. That they absolutely are. And now we're back on form. We hope to get episode three out fairly quickly. We'll do our best. Well, in our terms, fairly quickly. So until next time. Thank you for listening to Agalaf Manegas, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists, Chris Thompson and Isolde Obolacon Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit 
storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.